morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles located underneath the chair in front of you, and I encourage you to open to page 946 with me. Once again, that's the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's really good to be here this morning. Um, I am not preaching as regularly as I used to, so every opportunity I get, I really cherish. And uh, I just thank God for um, this opportunity to share God's word with, with you. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart um, and from um, my wife's heart as well. Um, we are just um, so delighted and so grateful for um, the fact that you guys have welcomed our dear Madeline and, and Jordan into your community of faith. Um, we really can't thank you enough. Um, I'm really jealous of all the great swag my kids get and, you know, they bring home and I'm just like, whoa, you know, this is good stuff. Um, so in all seriousness, um, I pray for you guys. I pray for this church. I pray for your witness. I pray for uh, your sanctification. Um, every so often I pray that the elders would be convinced of believer's baptism so I could join the church, but um, that's a whole other story altogether. Um, yeah, so overall, I'm just very grateful to be here. All right, um, we're living in um, very peculiar times. We're living in a season uh, when discouragement really seems to loom over us like a dark cloud. Um, it really does seem to be the, the ethos or the spirit of our times. Um, and I think you would have to have been living under a rock this past year or so to not see that it, it, it's it's a compounded amalgamation of a few different things, right? It's the coronavirus. It's this pandemic. Um, it's the racial strife that has been bubbling over, um, um, incited by very tragic, unfortunate incidents and um, accusations of, of um, systemic racism and so on and so forth. Um, political chaos that has... Uh, disrupted um, so many of our lives. Um, and this is what our society has been dealing with. And because of the nature of, of media and the devices that I'm sure each of you have in your pockets or sitting next to you, we really have no choice to be, but to be confronted by all of it. So everywhere we turn, what do we see? We see cynicism. We feel a growing um, and deepening distrust. We, we see just um, hypercritical um, tweets and posts on social media. And, and of course, there is just suspicion of anything and everything, it seems. And what this has led to is discouragement and disillusionment. In, in the hearts and, and the souls of many. But thanks be to God that believers like us, those who have put on and taken up the whole armor of God, thanks be to God that we are utterly immune to such discouragement, right? Hardly so. A Barna Research Group study reveals that committed evangelical Christians who were regularly joining the Sunday gathering at a 75% rate in September of 2019, that statistic within the span of one year has dropped 
to 51% September of 2020. And this includes in-person or online worship gathering. A 25% drop over a one-year span is, is pretty significant. And I know that isolated polls and surveys may not be the tell-all barometer representing the state of evangelical health, but it surely means something, and it points to some sort of deficiency, something that we need to think about and, and probe. Pew Research shows that um, one in five millennials and Gen Zers are so confused to the extent that they are rethinking their faith practices. This is Christian millennials and Gen Zers. Another poll of pastors, Protestant pastors, only 8% of Protestant pastors are feeling like they're connecting well with their sheep, with their congregation during the season. And further studies show that there is plenty of discouragement going around the pastorate for sure, who pastors who don't see, feel like they can get, get it right either way. Do we gather? Do we not gather? Do we go online or do we do something else? What, what, what do we do? Well, today's text couldn't be more relevant to what we're facing as followers of Christ, living in these confusing and chaotic times. What's the context of Hebrews chapter 10? The book of Hebrews was written to a community of followers who had been converted out of Judaism and into faith in Christ Jesus under what is known to be the New Covenant. But during these times, these Jewish believers were experiencing persecution. They were experiencing opposition and backlash for their faith in Christ. They were devoted followers of Christ Jesus. They were committed to their doctrine which shaped their morality, which shaped and directed their decision-making, and it resulted in lives that were countercultural in practice, in purpose. You see, their bottom lines were no longer profit margins and power and prestige, status, carnal pleasures. Instead, the lives of these believers were marked by Things like generosity, humility, gentleness, and hospitality, essentially the Roma of Christ. And for this, believe it or not, and we should believe it because this is what the Bible promises us to be truthful, they were persecuted. Well, as they're enduring these real and costly trials, these Jewish followers are being tempted to, to shrink back to revert to their former way of living, to their former beliefs. And what they were experiencing is, was a crisis of faith, one that was spurred on by discouragement and disillusionment. So the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who this author is, and we do know that he seemed to have a personal connection, a personal relationship with the recipients uh, some believe he was the pastor of, or a pastor within this church. He comes alongside these believers, and he reminds them through his letter, he reminds them of the power of the gospel, the beauty of the glorious gospel that has given them new life. And so what this author does is he, he writes this powerful apologetic for Christian living, for Christian perseverance, but what he does most crucially is he anchors every bit of his writing in the superiority of Jesus. And what he says, if you were to read Hebrews chapter 1 through 13, it wouldn't take you too long, and I encourage you to do so. I know you're going through 1 Corinthians right now, and I, can, I urge you to continue to read that book again and again and again. What he says in this book is Jesus is better. Jesus is simply better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is far superior to everything. And what he does in chapter 10, which is kind of like a, a pivotal point in this book, what he does in this 
portion of chapter 10 is he summarizes, believe it or not, the first nine and a half chapters in verses 19 through 21. And what he does is he uses, he uses two since we have declarations. And then what he does immediately afterwards is he lets loose on this church with three let us implications, right? So there's two since we have and three let us implications. So let's, let's quickly, hopefully, get into our text. We have the since we haves in verses 19 and 21, and we have the let us statements in verses 22, 23, and 24. So verses 19 and 20, since we have what? Since we have confidence. Since we have confidence. What's being contrasted in verses 19 and 20 is the access, access these Jewish believers had to the Father through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But what's being contrasted is the access they now have as opposed to the access they never had in the ministry of the Old Testament, under the ministry of the Old Testament priesthood. And without mincing words, what he does is he tells them of the confidence they should have in the here and now, their here and now, because their confidence is rooted in authority. Authority. Literally, what the author is telling them is they have full authorization to approach the throne of grace. And they have this authorization through which they can be fully confident through Jesus Christ. They were brought into the royal family and given the authority to enter into the most holy places. And so the author, as he reminds them of this reality, as he reminds them of God's authority that they now share, he warns them not to shrink back to any wrong motivations when it comes to observances of the Old Testament law. He doesn't say pull back from observing Old Testament law because the law is good. The law we follow in obedience, in response to the gospel. But what he tells them in essence is don't go back to the old Levitical framework and all the motivations of legitimizing your place before God don't go back there because those were temporary solutions to ultimate problems. Instead, what he says to do is continue doing what, you, what you've been doing. Press into the fullness of the new covenant where Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of rams and goats and bulls. He says, look to the perfect lamb of God who was sacrificed to atone for your sins. Remember that his shed blood spoke not only the better word, but the final word when the curtain, right, the veil of his body, metaphorically, was broken and torn. But in their weakness, in their discouragement, they were falling into this trap of reverting, of shrinking back. So then the author introduces another powerful and weighty truth in verse 21. Jesus is not only the better sacrifice, he's also the better great high priest. Verse 21 says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Again, he's presenting a, a contrast that is, is powerful and striking. Because in the Old Testament, when the law was, was given under the Old Covenant, when it was given to Moses and through Moses, what, what occurred? Trembling and cowering. Because there was reason, there was great reason to fear the holiness of God. And during the Old Covenant, no one had the confidence because no one had the authorization, the authority to, to enter the most holy place of the temple. And perhaps you are well-versed in understanding what this most holy place or the Holy of Holies was. It was the most... It was the centerpiece of the temple or the tabernacle. 
It was the place that the high priest alone, one day of the year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, it was the one day when he could enter with a blood sacrifice. He would, he would prepare himself with some elaborate purification ritual. And then he would enter into this most holy place, the Holy of Holies, with smoke from the altar of incense to help kind of shield his view. Again, because God's holiness, his Shekinah glory was so powerful, so weighty. And then he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant to, to atone for the sins of the people. This happened once a year by one man, and tradition tells us that there was a possibility that he wouldn't even make it out alive. Tradition tells us that supposedly they tied a rope around the great high priest's ankle and sometimes even put bells around his waist so that in case he didn't make it out, the priest who was outside the most holy place if he heard the bells go off because the guy dropped dead, because he hadn't purified himself ritually in the right manner, they would have to pull him out. This gave the people great reason to fear. But the author is telling them, you are no longer under that covenant. You are now under the new covenant. You are now living under the mediator of the new covenant as your savior and Lord and king. Jesus, who is the better and the truer and the, the far superior covenant maker, the great high priest was he. I love Tim Keller's list of Jesus is the true and better. It's this kind of longer quote that I'm not going to read in its entirety, which he ends with this flurry of truths. He says, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. This is what the ESV Bible, the study Bible, uh, I was going to kind of just kind of put it in my own words, but I, I figure I'll just read this short blurb because it's, it's so concisely on the money and true and beautiful. It says, Having concluded that Jesus is superior to the mediators of the Mosaic law, the author now establishes the superiority of Jesus to Moses himself, of Jesus to the Aaronic high priesthood, of the new covenant in Jesus' blood to the former covenant, and of Jesus' death to the Mosaic sacrifices. This exposition also leads to three prolonged exhortations to Christian perseverance. So this is what the author of Hebrews conveys to the Jewish saints for nine and a half chapters of this 13-chapter book. And he does this, once again, because he knows that these are the truths that provide the anchor, that provide the foundation, that provide the power behind their faith and anyone's faith. And again, he knows that any adherence to any mandate of law must flow out of the right gospel motivation. You know, I, I love your church's um, mission statement. As a biblical ministry, our motivation is the great commandment, right? To love God and love neighbor. And our purpose is the great commission. This is what I'm getting at. The motivation is the gospel motivation. He, we love because he first loved us. And it's because of his love for us that we can love others, that we can testify to his greatness. We can testify to his gospel. We can make the name of Jesus known and fulfill the purpose of the Great Commission. We exist to glorify God by blessing our neighbor through making disciples of Jesus Christ. Your motivation must fuel your purpose. Amen. And that is what the author wants to be sure to convey to these Jewish believers. And this is where we get into the three powerful let us exhortations, beginning first in verse 22. It's 22, 23, 24, and they read as follows. 
Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. 23, it says, let us hold fast. And verse 24 says, let us consider. Let us consider. I'm going to I'm going to do the first two together, and then we'll follow up with the last one in in verse 24. Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What, What is this full assurance? Full assurance of what? I believe it was the assurance that they were sons of God. They were children of God. You guys know the story, perhaps. If you don't, um, you can read about it in Luke chapter 15. But perhaps you're familiar with the story of the prodigal come home. To to cut to the chase of the story, the son rebels, leaves the father's house, but before he does, he says, give me what's mine, thereby basically telling his dad, in my eyes, you're dead, give me what belongs to me. He goes out into the world, he squanders everything in reckless, careless, foolish, debauched living, ends up not only working with pigs, he ends up living and eating with pigs and eating what the pigs ate. And at some point, the Bible says he came to his senses, right? He came to the realization that he was a fool, that he was in need of serious help. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back to my father's house. What have I done? Who am I? But this is really where he gets it wrong again. Instead of going back to his father with just utter desperation because he's at his wit's end, he starts creating his his own plan once again to make reparations. He, He goes back, and as he's thinking about what he'll do and what he'll say, he starts rehearsing what I'm gonna say to what he's gonna say to his father. He starts thinking about how he's going to earn his way back to sonship as a hired hand. Now, this may seem like it was the right thing for a messed up kid who rebelled and ran away from home and squandered, you know, uh, a huge inheritance. This may, 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 may seem like the right and appropriate procedural steps to take, right? This world tells us, you break it, you fix it. And if you can't fix it, you pay for it. That seems to make sense in this world's economy. This is not the economy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel which states clearly and plainly again and again and again that what? Jesus paid it all. You see, the prodigal was continuing, continuing to act as if he was sovereign over his situation, believe it or not, over his condition over his relationship with his father. But at this point in his life, he has no rights with his father. He has no privileges with his father. But nevertheless, he's caught in this trap again. And whether it was his irreligious, rebellious ways, or it was the, believe it or not, he was also being a religious Pharisee by saying, I'm going to go and do this to make, to make it better with my dad, to be reconciled and restored. I know we, those of you think the older brother was the Pharisee. No, the younger brother was both the irreligious rebel and the religious Pharisee. The older brother was the religious Pharisee as well, but I'm sure there were times in his life when he was the irreligious rebel as well, because that's what we all are depending on the day, correct? So he goes back to his father, and as the parable goes, he he experiences full reconciliation. His relationship is restored, but how did this come about? 
It came about through the mercy and compassion of the Father who received the prodigal back to his home and restored the relationship pretty unilaterally. It was the Father's loving kindness, the embrace of this rebellious son that restored the relationship And the son was able to love his father as a son can love his father only because the father welcomed him back and loved him first. This is what the author wants them to be assured of. And this is why he says, in light of the authorization in light of the confidence, in light of who Jesus is, better, far superior than anything you've ever seen or experienced before, in light of these things, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. The God who calls sinners to himself, not the righteous, not the religious, but enemies and rebels who are at the end of themselves. The God who forgives on his terms and his terms alone. And those terms were satisfied in Christ Jesus. So the author of Hebrews says, draw near to God. Let us, in light of the gospel, draw near to God. And then he exhorts them with the next let us. He says, let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. Let us hold fast to this confession of hope, eternal hope. Why? Because your hearts have been cleansed from guilt. Your hearts have been cleansed from unrighteousness and evil. Your bodies have been washed with pure water by the one who promised and promises to be faithful. I like how the NIV renders verse 23. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly, unswervingly. Let us hold fast to this hope that it, it's not contingent upon your performance. It's not contingent upon you legitimizing your status. It's not contingent upon your righteousness, but it's solely based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ that you receive through his death and his resurrection. Finally, verse 24, it says, let us consider. Let us consider, but beneath that, let us consider, there there are three things, right? He says, let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how we should not neglect meeting together. And then he says, let us consider how we are to encourage one another. But one thing I'd like to, 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 to make clear that as we move forward from here, uh, it's three things, but it, it's almost kind of like two things. The first and the third kind of hinging on the fulcrum. I don't know what I'm saying because I'm not a scientific guy, right? Of number two, right? Let us stir up one another, not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another. That's where the title of my sermon kind of flows out of. It's it's really this part of the text, verse 24 and 25, encouraged to encourage. What the author of Hebrews at this point is, 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 is doing is he's giving them very practical instruction, the nuts and bolts of what it means to live as one who has been saved by this great salvation right, individually, but one who has been called to to be a part of the family of God in local families of God like CGS. And what he says is, let us consider how to stir up one another. As you've drawn near to God, as you hold fast unswervingly to this, this eternal hope this truth, consider how to stir up one another. 
to love and good works, good deeds. I looked at all the translations, and I do that often because I just want to see the, the richness of the words that it can be used to, to translate the original. And this word stir that the ESV uses is really a great word to, to, to translate to the original, but the NIV uses the word spur. The Christian Standard Bible uses the word provoke. And the New American Standard uses the word, at least the new American Standard, the new New American Standard of 2020 uses stimulate. The 1995 version uses um, the word encourage. And basically, what he's trying to get at is, again, you know, not neglecting to meet together. That's the, the fulcrum upon which these two other kind of exhortations kind of you know, balance on. He's saying, if you don't meet together, you will have a very hard time stirring one another, spurring each other on, provoking each other to good works and deeds, stimulating each other to gospel growth. He says you can only do this if you're not neglecting the gathering. And these words, I don't know if you ever kind of thought about it or did a, a word study on it. This, this, these words um, are, are kind of unsettling. Unsettling in the sense that um, the Greek word, um, one of the, the words that are derived from the original uh, term is paroxysm. Right? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but what that is, is a, it's a sudden attack. It's a violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. It, it means to incite, right? You, you often hear that word, you know, inciting violence, incite, inciting, you know, kind of reaction. It, it means to irritate. It means to agitate. It means to provoke, provoke someone to something, an action, anger perhaps, but in this, in this sense, it's, it's provoking someone to good works and loving acts of kindness. One of the, the better illustrations that I, I'm not sure if I read it or heard it, was um, you guys um, ever do your own laundry? Hopefully you're not making your husband do it all the time or your wife do it all the time or your parents right, do it all the time, you're actually going down there sticking it in the launch. The, the, the washer, if you look at it, right, all the cycles, it has an agitation cycle, right? You know what the agitation cycle is? It basically is the washer just kind of going back and forth with the soapy water and what that agitation does, it provokes all the, the, the dirt and the grime that's, that's in the fibers of your clothing to get shaken out. It gets provoked, it gets kind of, you know, stirred up and, and it just kind of, it falls out. And your clothes become clean. This is what it means for the people of God to stir up one another. It means to agitate one another, right? It means to incite good works love, good deeds, kindness. And it says you can't do this if you're neglecting, if you're forsaking, if you're abandoning the gathering. So you need to be meeting together. You need to be not only agitating and stirring one another up, you need to be encouraging one another. And how does he end it? He says, he says and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near, right? The, the second coming of Christ, the second advent, you need to be encouraging one another. As you're stirring one another up and spurring each on to love, to good deeds, you need to be encouraging one another. Not gathering is a sign of immaturity, but it kind of compounds this immaturity, this stunted growth, because if you're not gathering, you cannot be engaging in the mutual stirring up, 
in the mutual encouragement of one another. You can't be engaging in many of the mutual one another's. And therefore, it will be a detriment to your growth and your sanctification and, and also the growth and the sanctification of others. Because God has created us, he's designed us, he's designed this church to be the body with Christ as the head. And it's within this body where we come together and rub shoulders, where we bring out in one another all that God has called us to bring out in each other. This is God's will for us, for our churches. This is what Paul writes in the gospel of the letter to the Romans in chapter one. He says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I, I long to see you, right? Why? Because I want to impart spiritual gifts to strengthen you so that we can be encouraged. It's not a one-way street. It's a mutual encouragement, yours and mine. And it hinges upon the gathering of God's people. This word encouragement is, is an incredibly rich word. It's a beautiful word. It's, it's a combination of para and kaleo, which basically means to come alongside, to walk alongside someone. And at that time, it was used as a word um, to exhort, believe it or not, timid, fearful soldiers who were on the brink of battle, who were, who were fearful. And they needed a, a, a jolt of boldness, a word of encouragement that will embolden them in the face of battle in the face of wars. This is the powerful sense of the word that we're, we're dealing with in Hebrews, right? Um, one pastor, he likened encouragement to spiritual adrenaline. Encouragement is like spiritual, adrenaline, spiritual adrenaline. What adrenaline does for the physical body, encouragement does to the soul. Anyone here have to carry around an epithet? An EpiPen, right? You don't have to raise your hands, but what, what is that? It's basically adrenaline, epinephrine in needle form. And what it does, it, it gives you a jolt of a lot of things. It increases your heart rate, right? It relaxes the airways to give um, your muscles, right, more oxygen. It allows more oxygen to get to the muscles. It, it redirects blood towards the muscles, causing a surge of energy. Believe it or not, it widens the pupils, right, of your eyes so that more light can enter your eyeballs. It, 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 more light can enter so you can be more alert. It increases the pain threshold, helps you tolerate more pain, and it also increases strength temporarily. When you are filled with adrenaline, when you have that surge, right, you're able to do some pretty incredible things. I read stories of people lifting cars off of, you know, um, people who were stuck beneath cars. I read a story about this woman, Olivia Arguello, who back in 2006, um, she went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a polar bear because her son and her son's friend were ice skating on this frozen lake and the bear was approaching them so she just went out and duped it out with this polar bear. And she survived. So if encouragement is like an adrenaline rush for the soul, then when we encourage one another, we're like, we're almost like acting like EpiPens, right? Injections for, for those around us who are experiencing spiritual distress, spiritual discouragement, spiritual danger. I read not too long ago that Martin Luther, on the day before he would stand before the Diet of Worms, which was just basically a council that was going to go off on him for his writings, for his um, Reformation kind of theology, 
He was scared, as can be. He was fearful. He feared for his life. He feared for his loved ones, I'm sure, as well. A military guy named George von Frunsberg, the day before he was to stand before the diet, he pulled him aside, put his arms on his shoulder, and he said, my little monk, you have, actually it was the day of, you have today a march and a struggle that neither I nor the great captains of our army have seen in our most bloody battles. If your cause be just, go forward in God's name. He will not forsake you. And that day, Martin Luther, with this kind of powerful encouragement, timely, he was able to stand before the Diet and say, here I stand, I can do no other. CGS, we are called to come alongside others and speak these kinds of life-giving words, hope-inspiring words. We're called to gather together so that we can encourage one another. And encouragement also is just very multifaceted. There are many forms, there are many faces to encouragement. It, it can simply mean coming alongside someone and putting your arm around his or her shoulder. It can mean to comfort. Often, the word, when you see comfort in the New Testament, it will actually be translated in, well, it's a translation of parakaleo, paraklesis, or some derivative of that word, encouragement. Encouragement can come in the form of admonishment. It can come in the form even of instruction, teaching. But the results of encouragement is strengthening, is emboldening, is giving life to the, to the one who hears and experiences this encouragement. And the reason why we can know that our encouragement is, is what the Lord calls for us to do is because the Bible makes it so clear that Jesus is our great encouragement. The Bible makes it clear that God is the source of our comfort and encouragement in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Bible makes it so clear that the Holy Spirit is the great encourager. He is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside us, the one who dwells within us to provide us with eternal encouragement. And so when we live as encouragers, one and of another, we're living out this life of the Trinity where, there's, where there has always been this mutual, ongoing encouragement being shared. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 reads, but encourage one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So to close, I'd like to encourage you, CGS, in a couple ways. One, continue in what you're doing so well. Continue in doing what you're doing so well. I'm pretty sure of this from what I hear from Madeline, from what I see in terms of her going to her smaller groups, to her larger groups. Um, you know, I, I saw that and I was like, wow, that's pretty uh, non-creative names for your small group and larger group ministries, but that's, that's totally fine. As long as it's working, as long as people are engaged and involved in these ministries, that's all that matters. Larger groups every third week of the month, and then you've got your men's groups and your women's groups and your college groups, right? And then you have your organic discipleship that takes, that's take, that takes place. Then you have your hangouts after Sunday gathering, your fellowship times, your Saturday morning corporate prayer gatherings, which is, I love it, and your Lord's Day gathering, of course. The commentators tell us back in the day when, when they're saying don't forsake the gathering, they think they... Uh, that the, the believers at that time, living under more intense persecution, more intense ostracism, they actually gathered perhaps daily. So that was what they needed 
Perhaps we don't need that type of daily gathering, but nevertheless, the principle still remains. Don't forsake the gathering. Continue to do this so that you can continue to exhort, to spur, to stir, to agitate, to provoke, to godliness. So that you can continue to encourage one another because there's a lot of discouragement going around. Not only in the world out there, but even in the midst, within the confines of the walls of our churches. Keep doing this. In line with your vision, I like this too, invest, invest, right? To invest in others. To invest what in others? Invest your encouragement in others. Drop seeds of encouragement regularly, consistently, creatively, thoughtfully, prayerfully. Think and pray about what brother or sister might need that timely word of encouragement. Writer of Proverbs tells us a, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. What kind of golden apples do you have to offer for your brothers and your sisters who are discouraged? Invest in creating a culture of encouragement. Paul writes in Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in, in, in honoring one another, right? I just botched that. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing encouragement. If you don't think you have the gift of encouragement, if you don't think that you're, the, you're a son or a daughter of encouragement, I beg to differ. Invest in creating a culture of intentional encouragement. Honor one another. Point out evidences of God's grace in one another. And you know, brothers and sisters, I stand here as one who must honestly say, do as I more often say and not as I do as often as I should. Create this culture here at CGS. Pointing one another to the gospel of grace. Being there for one another through hard times, through confusing times. This is what the Lord calls of us. This is what the Lord calls of you as a local church. Last year when I was going through a hard time and um, when I was not when I, when I was not able to be as transparent as I felt I needed to be or could be according to the word of God, I was in a really dark place and I struggled for quite some time. And I kind of swung on the extremes of kind of wallowing self-pity and discouragement and disillusionment and other times being in a place where I felt like, I can handle this on my own. I know that I'm right and things should have worked out a certain way, but they didn't, and therefore God's got your back, Juan. I was struggling, and um, Diane, my wife, and even my kids were there for me, and I was able to appropriately share with them what was going on in my life, in my heart, in my mind. But um, it wasn't long before I um, got a text. Um, hey, Juan, how's it going? How are you doing? You know, would love to get together and just talk and pray and encourage you. Um, and that was your pastor who reached out to me and um, brought me great comfort, great relief, and great encouragement. And quite honestly, the time we had together, I'm sure, because I did, 
after we met. I'm sure that it wasn't as sanctified as it should be on my end, especially. I'm sure that I spewed some words of gossip and perhaps even slander, and that is just wrong. But nevertheless, it was a time when I was able to feel the presence of God through words, through a time together, through that meeting that we had. And it was really life-giving. That's what Christian brotherhood's about. That's what life together is, is about. And that's what I want to encourage and exhort you to, CGS. We're a little over a month in, 2021, and who knows what's in store for us? Who knows what's in store for you? But I encourage you to be in faith, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you through one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this time when we can look to you, when we can look up, set our eyes on you, set our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Lord Jesus, who came in the form of man, who empathized with our temptations and yet was without sin, and who went to the cross in our place to suffer the consequences, the penalty, and to give to us what we didn't deserve, new life. Thank you, Father, for that everything that I talked about and exhorted these people to is grounded in the gospel of grace. I pray, Father, that, um, that for those who are here this morning who are profoundly discouraged, I pray ultimately that they would find their strength and their encouragement in you, Lord Jesus. But I also pray that this church understands how that grace is, is, is shared dispensed through one another, through the body. So Father, as we continue in our worship, as we partake of these elements that, that point to the true and better sacrifice, the true and better mediator of this new covenant through which we stand, I pray, Father, that you would nourish us and help us, Lord, to see that you are with us. Thank you for this time. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.